You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Well, the popularity of social media, uh, email, texting, and wireless earbuds tell us we live in an age of distraction, which is probably why Cal Newport's book has been selling pretty good. The book is called Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. And he's not a Christian, but what he writes about is, is how can we in a world of distractions be able to complete cognitive meaningful tasks? And so he offers some different suggestions. But it reminds me exactly of what Paul is doing in Ephesians as you get to the fourth chapter. Because Paul is going to take what he's talked about in chapters one through three and now tell us how does that apply to the deep work of the Christian life, to carrying out the tasks and responsibilities that we have as believers in an age of distraction. Uh, so turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. And it is important to realize that Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 are one long sentence. And so that's why we're going to take that section this morning uh, to look at it from two different perspectives. Because those six verses divide nicely into two parts, each of equal length. In other words, we're going to see that verses 1 through 3 are all about exhortation, about commands, instructions. And verses 4 through 6 are going to give us motivation. In other words, you know now what you need to do. How can you be motivated to follow through on that? Uh, and so that will be the source of our study this morning. So notice Ephesians 4 and verse 1, how Paul begins. As a prisoner for the Lord. So I mentioned that verses 1 through 3 are exhortation. Another word for exhortation is instruction um, to come alongside of, but to give, in a sense, orders, responsibilities. So this is why it marks the application part of the letter. But it's interesting to consider why Paul begins by saying, as a prisoner of the Lord. In other words, he prefaces these exhortations with a reminder of the commitment that he has made to Jesus Christ. In other words, he's not just writing saying, here's what you need to do, but he's taking the lead by saying, here is what you need to do, but I'm showing you how I have already applied this and am continuing to apply it. And so as you consider the fact that he says, I am a prisoner, we can take that literally as well as figuratively. Literally, he is in prison under probably house arrest in Rome at this point in time. So he also will write Colossians and two other letters from the same location. So Paul is literally a prisoner. But figuratively, he's reminding us of the commitment that he has made to Christ. That based on what Christ has done for him, Paul will describe himself in many other letters as a bond slave, a bond servant of Christ. And I think right away that puts before us something that backs up the exhortations he's going to give. 
in a sense, Paul has been there. He is doing this. And so he's not asking anything of his readers that he has not himself surrendered to and is learning to continue to surrender to. So it has a very pastoral implication behind it, a very much a, a exhortation compelled by his love for them. But you notice that there are instructions to follow that sentence, I am a prisoner of the Lord. And it is in those instructions that we're going to look at two exhortations. The first one is in verse 1. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. There's our first exhortation, instruction to every single follower of Christ to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And in that sentence, we want to pull out a few phrases to look at more closely. The first is, I urge you. This is a very strong verb. It means to, to plead with, uh, to summon, uh, to speak in God's name with the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is an apostle, and he does speak with authority. But that authority is not from man, it is from God. And so as he writes of a, in a very pastoral tone, he's saying, I, I, I summon you to live up to your calling in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say, I summon you to work for your salvation. No, because salvation's by grace. He doesn't say, I summon you to work so you don't lose your salvation, because that would be impossible. But he's challenging them, the fruit of that salvation should be evident here in very practical ways. And I think for each of us, that's always the challenge. How is the evidence of our salvation displayed throughout the week? In the workplace, in our families, in our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. How is that displayed? How is it evidence of the fact that we understand the high and holy calling, not just your pastor has, but, but the calling that each of us have in Christ Jesus. So the first term there, I urge you, but notice the second, to live a life. Uh, many of you may be more familiar with some older translations that had it, to walk worthy. And that he says in another letter to the believers in Thessalonica, that you would walk worthy, that you would live a life worthy. And that particular phrase incorporates everything about us. Our words, our conversation, our attitudes behind our actions. It embraces all of those aspects. So Paul is pleading with them that just as he is seeking to live a life worthy while he's in prison. And you could say, well, how is that reflected? Uh, well, one, he's writing this letter. So he's not sitting in prison saying, woe is me. You know, I could be out visiting churches right now. This is such a waste of time. But it's during those times of God's providence where Paul is removed, in a sense, from public ministry that we have these letters written to us, to other believers. What, what a benefit and blessing where Paul is saying, I am living up to my calling in Christ Jesus in spite of and through the difficult circumstances 
you know I'm having. And I think all of us can relate to that on different levels. We've each had difficult circumstances. We have been in, are in, maybe headed towards, but we can still live a life worthy of the calling in Christ Jesus. And then we finally come to the third part, not just I urge you, now that we understand what it means, a life, but then worthy of the calling. Uh, the word worthy could be substituted for words like proper, fitting. In other words, Paul's saying, um, I'm, I'm calling on you to live up to what is already yours in Christ. So all we need to do is go back for a moment, look at chapter 1 again, Ephesians 1, and in particular verse 18 where Paul does talk about this calling. And if you wanted to, you could reread verses 3 through 14, where Paul has unfolded even further the spiritual blessings and standing that are yours in Christ. So when he says, live a life worthy of the calling, if you were wondering, what do you mean by calling? All you need to do is go back to the early part of the letter. And so you notice in Ephesians 1:18, Paul says there, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So this aspect of his calling is how God has summoned us, bestowed his grace upon us, made us his own. We are now standing righteous in God's presence through Jesus Christ. That is a permanent change in position and standing. Now that standing cannot be altered. But sin in our life can hinder and affect our fellowship with God and his use of us in his service. So this is why Paul would say you need now to walk worthy of that calling. Keep close accounts with God. And so this first exhortation is that you would live up to your calling in Christ. Maybe we could even summarize, contemporize that a little bit more. Simply practice what you preach. Practice what you profess. You know, you profess to be a follower of Christ. Is, is that evident? And how evident? So we're still looking at, in verses 1 through 3, exhortations. But there's a second major exhortation there, and it begins in verse 2. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So we'll stop and look at this next exhortation that Paul gives here that, again, is a part of living a life worthy of our calling. So you notice it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Now the word completely can be rendered totally, all. In other words, there's never a point where you can say, I have done that. So Paul can't say, done that, been there, I'm already humble, I'm already gentle. Now Paul can increasingly say his life is displaying that, just as each one of us in Christ should be able to look at that and say, my life is reflecting that more and more. But we are to give our attention, because of our calling in Christ, to the development of these different characteristics. 
So let's take a moment to just think about this. What does it mean to be humble? To be completely humble in, in all areas of our life, increasingly so. Well, we may associate humility with, with a, a lowliness about us. Maybe it's good to refer to like a servant attitude. We, we, we strive to put the needs of others above our own. And you could say Paul's reflecting that here as he's writing this letter because of his love for others. We know that Paul had a host of other physical ailments that probably at times made writing or dictating letters uh, difficult for him. But why is he doing it? Because of his love for the church, the burden he carries for the growth and development of others in Christ. In fact, when Paul is parting ways with this very church in terms of their elders in Acts 20, where he meets up with the elders of the church of Ephesus and basically says this is probably the last time that we'll see each other, <coughs> he says to them in Acts 20, I have served you with great humility and with tears. So in other words, he has lived out, not perfectly, not sinlessly, but he's known for his lowliness, his servant attitude when he was among them. And at least we know they had roughly, you know, three years to observe Paul among them. That's a good amount of time to see what a person is genuinely like in character. But we're not to just stop with humility being worked out in our life, but then he goes on to gentle, completely humble and gentle. Um, now, sometimes we equate gentleness with meekness, and that is true, but that sounds a lot like humility. So is Paul focusing on something slightly different by this attribute? And I think he's hitting on something that comes out in some pagan philosophers when they talked about gentle or gentleness. What they meant was a balance in one's reactions to something. And I would almost say what Paul's saying here, that, that our Christian life displays itself, that we have a balanced reaction to things. In other words, we, we don't tend to go to extremes, but we display discernment wisdom. So when we react to sin, yes, we should have a reaction. We should not be indifferent to sin. When we react to conditions in our world, we shouldn't be moved to a sense of hopelessness, but our hope is in Christ. So we have a very well-balanced, discerning response to circumstances and situations in our life. And I don't think we have to go far to kind of think, well, where, where did Paul develop this sort of mindset, that this is vital, that this is what the deep work of the Christian life is like? Well, all you need to do is think again of the teachings and words of Christ. When he's sending out the 12, he says to them, you're going to go out into the world, a world described as like wolves in sheep clothing. But when I send you, what you need to do is be as shrewd or wise as snakes, but as gentle or harmless as doves. So he was saying, as you go out, go out with wisdom, with a well-balanced perception and response to the world around you. 
And that is exactly what he's saying. This should mark increasingly spiritual maturity in each of us. Now, do we fail it sometimes to display well-balanced thinking? Absolutely. We, we all get focused at times on a circumstance, something we're dealing with that seems overwhelming. But hopefully in the Christian life, those times become less and less. That our reaction is maybe first to pray, uh, to tell someone else to pray for us, to go to the Word and read it for comfort and instruction. So we've looked at what it means to be humble, what it means to be gentle. And then he says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, I don't think you'd be surprised if I told you none of you were perfect, including me. We all are like, yeah, I've got that, know that. This is one of the, the good but probably not so good at the moment it happens, things that happens in the life of a pastor. Uh, as you can probably imagine, Sunday mornings are usually pretty busy for me. A lot of little things I'm, I'm working on trying to um, get done. And as I mentioned this morning, Heather threw her back out. So I have to be honest and say, I probably was not as humble, as gentle, and as patient as I could have been. Now, I know that's important, but sometimes you have things happen where you suddenly can look back and say, yeah, I, I did some of that. But did I really do it in a way that would honor Christ? And I think we all can see ourselves where, yes, it's easy to talk about these things. But we need God's grace and his continual work in our life. So we live those out. And it's this last one that is interesting. Patient or bearing with one another. Uh, in other words, allowing for the weaknesses of one another in the body of Christ. That we kind of laugh that we're all not perfect, but yet I would say that many times we get very impatient, probably, with other believers. Maybe we get impatient with their spiritual progress or lack of spiritual progress or something about their personality or something that's happened, um, that we grow impatient. To bear with implies not just you are aware of their weaknesses and, and you're praying for that and you really want to help them, but also that you are willing at times to endure wrongs in the right spirit. That you don't always have to be right. But we should always want to be holy and Christ-like. And so here's Paul writing from his own imprisonment, talking about being humble, gentle, patient with one another because of God's grace, patience, and gentleness with us. Now, you can realize none of this is easy. But he's not done yet. We haven't gotten to verse 3. He has another part of that exhortation dealing with displaying godly character. And so you notice in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, be a peacemaker. Now, that needs some clarification because we might think that just means never address anything that might get someone upset. Just try to keep the waters calm. That, that's not what a biblical 
peacemaker would be. That's not what God has called us to in Christ Jesus. It's just to be someone who keeps things relatively quiet or on a certain level. I think when you look at this, a peacemaker is one who first does realize love covers a multitude of sins. And there are times that there are issues we don't need to address. That in love we should be able to to look past, to look beyond, to bear with another brother or sister in Christ who's different, who's weaker, who has differences in that area. But at the same time, to be a peacemaker means that because we have gentleness, we're well-balanced, we know when there are issues that need to be confronted and how those issues are to be confronted in a spirit of love. And that's what Paul is saying. That's a part of a godly character, an exhortation that we should all be striving toward. Notice he says, make every effort. In other words, this is something that will require determination and exertion on your part. Not, not that you can do this on your own. You can only do it through Christ at work in you. But it's going to be work. You know, all of us have different personalities. Some of us are a little more confrontational. We can speak up. Others of us aren't. But there's no excuse for not addressing sin when, when you clearly see it. And so this is what it means to be a peacemaker. And notice for Paul, realizing he's absent from that body, so in one sense, he might feel somewhat like limited. What can I do if there's things going on in that church that's disruptive? Well, he's going to say, I'm reminding you of your responsibility. And notice the responsibility is not to make that unity happen, but to maintain it. In Christ, he has made us one. I'm confident that when Jesus prayed that they would be one as I and the Father are one, that that prayer was answered at the cross. That that's not something he's still praying for us. He has made us one in Christ. But Paul then says, here's the responsibility incumbent upon each one of us to exert by God's grace and spirit in you of making every effort, every action to support that unity, to have that unity be built upon, to maintain it, to guard it. Now, I think for many of us, we, we are quick to point out when there is division, disagreement, disunity, uh, but how many of us are putting that kind of energy into maintaining the unity of the Spirit? And I think we could look around us at other churches and, and those that maybe are, are not as unified as we are is it because, sadly, sometimes in the body of Christ, you have believers who are putting more effort and energy into creating disunity than in maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? And I hope, as you listen to these exhortations, I hope you're feeling a little overwhelmed. Like, this, this is hard. You know, I'm, I'm not in your house. You're not in my house. I don't know how you are out in the community. But I think we can all look at this and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not always humble. I'm not always gentle. I'm not always patient with people. 
like I should be. Uh, I'm not always striving to be a, a godly sort of peacemaker, but yet speak the truth in love when it's needed. So Paul in verses 4 through 6 briefly touches on motivation here. In other words, how can we do this? Well, the motivation is reflected in verses 4 through 6. Notice that in these verses, the word one occurs seven times. And where Paul's going with this emphasis on unity is that the origin of each of those exhortations and their basis is found in the interworking and unity in the Trinity. In other words, here's your motivation. Here's the reason. These are not beyond you in Christ to be acting on and fulfilling more and more each day because they are an outgrowth of what is reflected in the perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so as you look at how Paul treats this, he, he sort of does it in reverse order where we think of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul here just begins with the Spirit in verse 4. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. So there really is only one true church, the church of all who confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now that invisible body of Christ has many local geographical bodies. We would be one of those. But what Paul's referring to here is think of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who applies to us the work of Jesus Christ. As so you go back in Ephesians 2, what was part of that work? In Christ, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile was removed. We're now one body in Christ. There was always the danger in the early church to start thinking there were two churches. There's the Jewish Christian church and there's the Gentile Christian church. Well, there's just one body. But notice in that discussion, one spirit, one hope. Everything that we say is a reality in our lives is because of the application of the work of the Holy Spirit. But then you notice in verse 5, he speaks of Jesus Christ. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It is Christ who has accomplished our salvation. It is because of Christ we can be gentle, humble, loving, bearing up with one another. And so you notice as he speaks of that, that there is one Lord, one ultimate faith. In a world that we like to use faith in such a generic way, you know, we speak of all faiths. Well, this is saying there, there's only one true faith, and that is built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. When he mentions baptism here, probably is not necessarily focusing on, you know, water baptism or the form of baptism, but, but our identification and union with Christ. So you're not an isolated individual who's reading this saying, how, how am I going to do this? How am I going to carry out these exhortations? You're united in Christ. Christ's power is at work in you. Are you actually saying that these are too difficult for Christ's power to carry out in you? 
Paul would say, I hope you're not saying that, because then you're missing my point. And then you get to the final statement in verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It is the Father who plans salvation. And so you see this interworking and unity within the Godhood, the triune unity that is the basis for what Paul's talking about, the unity that is among us in Christ Jesus. And in that unity, all of these exhortations apply to each of us. So in other words, it's because of the grace of the new covenant that is ours in Christ that we can do what is required here. As it's often been said, what God requires, he gives. He gives us his power to be able to faithfully obey these. Will it be easy? Absolutely not. Because you need to grow. You need to depend on Christ to carry these out. So think this week. How are you carrying out and living up to a life that is worthy of the high calling that is yours in Christ Jesus. And that should be our focus. Not being distracted by the things around us, social media, wireless earbuds, and everything else that's there, but to do the deep work of the Christian life. Exhortation, but exhortation that is built upon motivation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak so clearly in your word. Give us hearts that respond in obedience, that when we find this is difficult to do this week, that we are reminded that it is the power of God who is in all through all that enables us to do that which is required. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.